Life isn't like a book. That's what Chuck Colson says anyway, founder of Prison Fellowship, the late Chuck Colson. He said, life isn't logical or sensible or orderly. Life is a mess most of the time. And theology must be lived in the midst of that mess. How many of you find that to ring true in your life? Frustration comes for many of us when we refuse to embrace that reality. We often read the scriptures as if they were formulaic, don't we? It's a formula. Cause and effect. If I do this, then God will do that. And he always does it, right? Christians are notorious for this. Most of us approach the Christian life with the philosophy that if we live a certain way, we will experience certain results. For instance, classic example. Here's a classic example, all right? Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Right? Formula. That's what we think. I believe the God-breathed truth of that statement. Don't even question it. Of course, there is a vast array of applications about how that principle should be interpreted. Yet without getting into all of that, I want to point out one practical dilemma involved. What happens when you have raised your child in the ways of God, you've done everything that you think you can possibly do to the best of your knowledge to train them up as followers of Christ, and then you're blindsided one day when your teen comes home and seemingly jettisons everything that you've taught them to believe? It's more than a little frustrating, isn't it? What do you do? You throw out the truth of God's Word? Reinterpret it to fit your particular situation? Because that's what most people do. Or do you get depressed and begin to question the validity of your faith? Or... Do you trust God in the questions and live theology in the midst of the mess? Here's another one. You know the deal. You're experiencing something in the way of a trial in your life. It may be something extremely traumatic, like the death of a, of a loved one or a relative, or a mere inconvenience, like a flat tire when you're in a rush to get somewhere. Regardless of what it is, uh, when it's all said and done, a well-meaning, eternally smiling, scripture-quoting comforter crowds up next to you and with a firm arm clenched around your drooping shoulders recites with word-perfect accuracy Romans 8.28 and God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. What's your reaction to that? A little frustrated? Pull out the gun you carry. <laughs> Little skeptical to the suggestion of such a formulaic approach to life. Well, Mr. Colson is right. Life under the sun isn't like a book. It's a mess most of the time. It's not all we expect it to be. 
Sometimes it's not logical. It's frequently out of order. And it doesn't always make sense. But the truth is theology must be lived in the midst of that mess. The only other option is to abandon God and live in frustration and despair. And frustration, as you know, as we've seen so far, was no stranger to Solomon either. As he tried to make some sense out of life under the sun, he encountered an enormous dose of it. In the first two chapters, he sizes it all up and he declares the problem. He says, life is meaningless. If there's a formula at all, it's a formula for futility. And he gives the examples, the monotony of life, the vanity of wisdom, which we talked about a few weeks ago, and the futility of pleasure, which we talked about last week, all point to the fact that it's not worth the trouble. And he's got quite an argument. And if people aren't convinced by all of that, there's one more thing that he dumps into the mix that makes life meaningless and empty to him, and that is the certainty of death. The certainty of death. Could there be anything more frustrating in life? Here's the deal. You're born. You're potty trained. You're nurtured at home for five or six years. Then you're put in school for a dozen or so. And you learn the ropes. You drive a car. You strive for knowledge. You get a degree or two. You work yourself silly and build a legacy. And then one day you wake up. And you realize that your memory is spotty. Your license is gone. You're back in your diapers. You're led around by the hand. And any day now, they're going to put you in a box and forget all about you. And what will be the end of all your blood, sweat, and tears? So let's hold down the joy, shall we? Pretty dismal picture, isn't it? When you put it like that, you say, let's just get it over with right now. But that's what Solomon concluded in very short order. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Just look at verse 17 for a moment. Solomon says, For I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Look at verse 20. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. Verse 22, for what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. Striking a chord. But thankfully, that was not the end of the matter. Later, as we will see, he came to his senses. The teacher finally realized that life is not just about what we want and what we end up with. The joy of life, he learned, involves something more than just us and the devices we use to fill up the 24 hours in a day. But he had to do some desperate searching before arriving at that conclusion. A journey that resulted in much frustration. Frustration is a good word to describe Solomon's quest. It comes from the Latin word frustra, which means vain. Someone who is frustrated feels that whatever he's doing is empty of purpose or meaning. So far, that sums up the author's view. Chapter 2, verse 11. 
Thus I considered all my activities which, which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun. It was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after wind. That's the section we're going to look at and more. In this last section of chapter 2, Solomon takes up a whole new approach. In verse 12, he says, So I turned to consider. He's going to pursue another whole direction of research from what he's already done. This time, Solomon decides to make a few comparisons to see if he can derive any solutions. So he's comparing things here. He takes three aspects of living life, wisdom, work, and worry. And he asks a few questions of them. First of all, he says, what is the advantage, let's say, of wisdom over foolishness? Hard work over laissez-faire attitudes. Worrying about the future versus taking it as it comes. We all ask these questions. We all struggle through and wrestle through these things. Which is more advantageous in life, wise perceptivity or darkened stupidity? Building posterity or wasteful activity? Careful anxiety or careless passivity? These are the questions that he's asking. By the time he's done with the comparisons, he has a few answers, but they're no more satisfying than anything else he's tried up to this point. Let's look at the discoveries he's made. First of all, he asks the question, what on earth then is the value of preeminent wisdom? That's verses 12 to 17, which I just read. Initially, it was clear that wisdom had its advantages over folly, exceptional advantages. For Solomon, wisdom surpassed stupidity as light over darkness. That's what it says in verse 13. I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. A wise man has vision, Solomon says, enough to see clearly the options and to use them to make his life easier. The fool, however, walks through life as if he had a blindfold tied around his head, wandering aimlessly, groping, bumping into things. Sure, he might learn from his mistakes, but it's a pretty painful and dangerous process. Wisdom clearly has it over folly, says Solomon. I read a humorous story online purported to be true that illustrates how the exercise of a little bit of wisdom can yield advantageous results. George Phillips of Meridian, Mississippi, was going up to bed when his wife told him that he'd left the light on in the garden shed, which she could see from the bedroom window. And George opened the back door to go turn off the light, but saw that there were actually people in the shed stealing things. 
He phoned the police who asked, is someone in your house? And he said, no. Then they said that all patrols were busy. Therefore, they should simply lock the door and an officer would be along when one was available. George said, okay. He hung up the phone, counted to 30, and then phoned the police again. Hello? I just called you a few seconds ago because there were people in my shed stealing things. Well, you don't have to worry about them anymore because I just shot them all, and he hung up. <laughs> Within five minutes, three police officers <laughs> were there, police cars, an armed response unit, and an ambulance showed up at the Phillips residence. Of course, the police caught the burglars red-handed, and one of the policemen said to George, I thought you said that you shot them. George said, I thought you said there was nobody available. <laughs> now, although familiar of the familiar version of this story might be a bit of fiction, could something like this have really happened? Actually, a few real-life incidents matching the basic elements of that story did take place. In September 2003, a minister in Odessa, Texas, who felt police were not responding quickly enough to his call about a burgled church 40 minutes later followed up with a second phone call in which he reported he was holding hostages and threatening to kill them at the location. The three police officers who were pulled off other cases to converge on the hostage call were not amused by this ruse, and they arrested its perpetrator, the pastor, Paul Weymouth, 63 years old of Heights Christian Church on charges of filing a false report. So don't try what I just said to you at home. Same thing happened in November 2009. An East Texas man called 911 to report that he just committed a murder and was still armed. Several officers from the Tyler, Texas police force sped to his address in cars with emergency lights and sirens blaring only to find the 911 dispatch had been a whole joke, a ruse. The caller had been assaulted earlier in the day and wanted to file a complaint, so he'd fabricated this claim about killing someone in order to prompt a quicker response from the officer. Again, he was arrested for filing a false report. And you could call it wise or you could call it stupidity. But when comparing wisdom to stupidity, even from an earthly perspective, Solomon says wisdom wins hands down. However, wisdom can be wrongly applied, as we just saw. One of the greatest tragedies in the world is encountering someone who is intellectually brilliant, but their higher learning has made them spiritually blind. From a heavenly perspective, that is the person who is actually groping in the dark. Psalm 14.1 says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds, and there is none who does good. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 18 through 20 says that for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person, Paul asks? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? It's earthly wisdom that Solomon is comparing here. 
Does the wise man have an advantage over the fool? Sure he does. But ultimately, Solomon concludes, both the fool and the wise man are overcome by the same fate. Both of them will die. Verse 14. I know that one fate befalls them both. As is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. So why? Why then have I been extremely wise? This too is vanity. See, death always brings wisdom to an abrupt end. Wisdom in this life, this world's wisdom. No amount of wise living under the sun can put death off forever. Death is the great equalizer, says Dan Allender and Tremper Longman, that puts all people on the same plane. And we just did two funerals in the past week. It's very, very apparent. And right there in front of us. You might say, well, at least a wise man will be remembered for his wisdom. He'll be a blessing and a benefit to succeeding generations. But Solomon relates a story later on in this book that brings the real truth of the matter home. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, if you would, for a moment. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 14. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed a large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered that city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said... Wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. Go back to chapter 2. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man, says Solomon, as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. We try so hard to sustain the memories. We erect pyramids, monuments, carefully etched headstones, yet erosion and time overtakes them all. Eventually, we will all be erased from earthly memory. Whenever I walk out in that cemetery, at the end of this property, I'm struck by two things. First, I am moved by the history that lingers on. There have been some wise and godly, influential men and women in the history of this town and in this church. Yet as I approach the oldest stones down there, I am horrified as to how crooked and cracked the monuments have become. How horribly the names have faded away and how rapidly the memories have disappeared. The ancient poet Euripides called death the debt we all must pay, unquote. And as Solomon points out, rich or poor, old or young, wise or foolish, all are either in the grave or on their way to it. And so, says one author, it will continue to be. Really giving you a good perspective today, aren't I? This is what Solomon is doing. 
Yes, human wisdom has its advantages in an under-the-sun kind of way, but it's not the answer to life. This is the point. This is why I believe God has this book in the Bible. It's not the answer to life, nor is it the epitome of what it means to really live. In light of death's absolute certainty, human wisdom changes absolutely nothing in the long run. Sounds pretty depressing, doesn't it? No wonder Solomon lamented, so I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun. It was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after wind. In other words, what in the world is the point? All this studying we've done, all this work I've put in has gotten me no further toward fulfillment and meaning, says Solomon. And that's another beef I have, he says, work, labor, posterity. What's the point of laboring so diligently and meticulously in order to build something of value because when I'm gone, who knows what's going to become of it? So that brings up the second question that Solomon's dealing with here. What on earth is the value of perennial work? Verse 18. Read along with me. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. Again, here it is. Solomon's pouring out more frustration, working, strategizing, planning, time, effort, blood, sweat, tears, broken relationships, loss of health, sacrifice, investments, all for what? To build bigger barns? Larger storehouses, a more successful business, and when it all comes to the wire, who gets it? Who gets it? Maybe a wise man, maybe a fool. You don't know. The bottom line is that everything you've worked for on this earth, everything you killed yourself for, will not follow you to the afterlife. Someone else is going to get it. They will inherit what you have given your life for. And they may completely destroy in one year what it took you 50 to build. Think that's a little frustrating? Let me give you a rundown of a few of the frustrations associated with being focused on building an earthly legacy instead of building a heavenly one. Ultimately, number one, you can't keep it. An earthly legacy, you can't keep it. Verse 18, I hated all the fruit of my labor because I need to leave it to the man who will come after me. You can't keep it. doesn't follow you to heaven. The earthly legacy. When you die, and you will, you can't take it with you. I said last week, I, I referenced an old cliche, you never saw a hearse pulling a, a U-Haul, right? You can't take it with you. Number two, you can't control it. Verse 19, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, and he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. When you die, and you will, someone else is going to decide what happens with all you've accomplished. 
It could be someone with a keen sense of wisdom who will do great things, or it may be a complete fool who will squander and destroy it. Either way, they're going to take over where you leave off, and you don't have anything to say about it, and you can't do much about it, can you? You can't keep it. You can't control it. And number three is you can't protect it. You can't protect it. Verse 20, I completely despaired for all the fruit of my labor, which I had labored under the sun. When there's a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, skill, and then he gives his legacy to the one who has not labored with them. It's vanity and a great evil. Some have tried to protect their estates through carefully designed wills. Yet ultimately, it really doesn't matter, does it? When you die, and you will, all the wisdom, skill, knowledge, and labor that was put into whatever it is that you built or you're building will be simply handed over to another who has no investment in it. Solomon says, that's just frustrating. And it's emptiness. Solomon's own domestic and political circumstances eventually proved his frustrations were well-founded. These verses may well be the thoughts of an anxious father who realizes that one day, one day, he will have to hand over to his son what it took a lifetime for him to build. A son, as it turns out, who was neither wise nor skilled. The tragic story of Rehoboam's misuse of Solomon's legacy, his father's legacy, is a lesson in futility. Read 2 Chronicles chapters 10 through 12 this week. You find that Rehoboam presided foolishly over the breakup of the kingdom that his father had reigned over for 40 years. And that, in history, became the split of Israel and Judah, the divided kingdom because of Solomon's son and his foolishness. What a tragic story. Chuck Swindoll writes, after four decades of peace, Solomon handed over this kingdom to his son Rehoboam. He took the kingdom from his father and and had available to him all kinds of wise counselors or foolish ones. He could choose. He could choose to listen to the seasoned men of God who would warn him or listen to the young self-serving upstarts who cared nothing about God. Guess what he chose? You guessed it. He chose the latter. And within a brief span of time, hardly a year, the country was in civil war. Egypt came marching in and Rehoboam went to the temple, Solomon's temple, took all the solid shields of gold and handed them over to the Egyptians to keep them from invading, thinking the bribery would stop them by filling their coffers with Israeli gold, the gold his dad had put in that temple. Rehoboam hoped to calm the Egyptians' aggressions. What a joke. As expected, they kept wanting more and more and more. Here's a very practical and disturbing reality, folks. You can be the wisest, most diligent parents on the face of this earth. But friends, there are no guarantees that your children will wisely appreciate or skillfully appropriate all that you have labored for. There are no guarantees. There is no way to know if they will follow in your steps. With great insight and candor, author Ray Pritchard 
brings this to a realistic view. He says, children have minds of their own. And in the end, our sons and daughters must choose for themselves whether they will serve the Lord. However, I do believe we can tip the scales in the right direction. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying give up on training up your children because we can tip the scales in the right direction by the way that we live on a day-to-day basis. Our kids have excellent baloney detectors and can smell a phony a mile away. If you're saying one thing with your mouth and doing something else with your life, they know it. On the other hand, we don't have to be perfect either. Consistency matters. Time spent with our children matters. Prayer matters. And faith matters. Children make many mistakes in the course of this life. But those raised in godly homes will be inclined toward righteousness. Christian parents need to take the long view when evaluating how their children are doing. Many teenagers and young adults go through a period of questioning values and testing their limits. But the good seed planted in childhood will eventually bear fruit, though not necessarily as soon as we would like or as abundantly as we would like. You see, because we're not in control of it. God is. Our children belong to the Lord, not to us. That's what we need to remember. This is a very hard lesson to learn, and most of us have to relearn it over and over again many times. They are gifts from the Lord, entrusted to our care for a few brief years. A few months ago, he said, I heard someone say a most reassuring thing. God is not worried about your children. Think about that for a while. God's not worried about your children. He knows them better than we do. And he loves them with an everlasting love. And he will not stop. He will not relent until his work in them is complete. Our part is to be faithful to God and God will take care of the rest. Being faithful, that's the key. Being faithful. There is an ironic twist of Solomon's frustration. It was the fact that Rehoboam followed in his father's unfaithfulness to God that caused the kingdom to fall. Second Chronicles chapter 12, you can read that and it talks about it. Second Chronicles chapter 12, actually you could turn there. Second Chronicles chapter 12. Verse 1, when the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and strong, he and all Israel with him, what's it say? Forsook the law of the Lord. And it came about in King Rehoboam's fifth year because they had been unfaithful to the Lord that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. Verse 5, then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the princes of Judah who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak, And he said to them, thus says the Lord, you have forsaken me, so I also have forsaken you to Shishak. So the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous. 
And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah saying, they have humbled themselves, so I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some measure of deliverance and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by means of Shishak. But they will become his slaves so that they may learn the difference between my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. That's a very revealing verse of Scripture. The conclusion of Rehoboam's reign, though, was just like Solomon's, and even to a greater degree. In 2 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 14, we read these words. He did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. And if you compare that to 1 Kings chapter 11, which speaks of Solomon in verse 4. It says, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away from other God, toward other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Verse 6 says, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Are you depressed yet? Solomon seems to be. If great wisdom really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, if hard work and diligence ends up being squandered and wasted by succeeding generations, then the third thing that Solomon brings up is what on earth is the value of persistent worry? Persistent worry. Verse 22, for what does a man, back in Ecclesiastes 3, for what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. Can't sleep at night. Too much anxiety. So what is the value on, what on earth is the value of persistent worry? Nothing, Solomon says. All it does is give you insomnia and restlessness. What's the point of laying up treasures on earth and losing sleep over them? If, that's all, if it's all so meaningless and all so empty, what on earth are we to do? Ray Steadman asks, is there no answer? Is it all hopeless? Is it but a matter of time before we too are jaded and burned out by excess, life having lost its value, meaning, and color? In the New Testament, Jesus had something to say about our anxiety over life under the sun. And it's very interesting that Jesus mentions Solomon in this text. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. Matthew 6 verse 25. Jesus says, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Underline it in your Bibles if you haven't already. How many times Jesus says, do not be worried? Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil. They don't spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, 
Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek after all of these things. But your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. See where Jesus says to put your focus? Not on life under the sun, by a life in the sun, S-O-N. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness first. Jesus says, put a relationship with God into the picture and everything else changes. He doesn't say forget about your responsibilities in this life. He says, don't make them your priority. Make Jesus your priority. So fourthly, it seems that Solomon is asking the question, what on earth then is the value of a heavenly relationship? Verse 24, Ecclesiastes 3. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? That is a critical verse of Scripture in this book. That's the hinge of the book. For to a person who is good in his sight, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. What on earth is the value of a heavenly relationship? Everything, everything. You cannot have true joy without it. The joy of wisdom depends on it. The enjoyment of your earthly labor swings on it. The restful relief from worry and stress is controlled by it. From chapter 1, verse 14, to chapter 2, verse 23 in this book, there is not one mention of God. Then in a burst of insight, Solomon finally admits in these two, verses 24 and 25 that life under the sun is utterly unenjoyable without God in the mix. In other words, he's saying, if God's not in it, it ain't worth it. Say that with me. If God's not in it, it ain't worth it. It's an unforgettable and undeniable principle. And interestingly enough, it comes straight out of Psalm 127. Psalm 127, which is one of only two psalms in the entire Psalter attributed, believe it or not, to Solomon. Years ago, I preached that message in Psalm 127. And all the way through that message, I repeated that mantra. If God's not in it, and the people are supposed to respond, it ain't worth it. If God's not in it, it ain't worth it. And some of you today still remember that message. I can see the smiles on your faces. Make it your mantra this week. Because that's where we're going to pick it up next time with Psalm 127 and the rest of this, some more in this message. So stay tuned. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you just don't leave us in despair. But your word of God gives us the answers. And the answer is that it's worth all of our investment when you are the central part of it. 
Let us be busy this week, Lord God, about building up our treasures in heaven, about focusing on our spiritual priorities, that we would allow you, by your guidance and your clarity, to show us how much we need to put in to life under the sun and where we need to leave it off and leave it in your hands. Let us be good parents, good husbands, good wives, good community servers, good citizens, good followers of Christ because we fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Our heavenly focus is above and not on the things of this earth. We thank you, Lord, that you give us the power to do it through your Holy Spirit and because of what Jesus has accomplished through his resurrection. And it's in his perfect name that I pray. Amen.